Okay, well, we're back into Joshua this morning. We took a break. We did our question series, which was fun. And uh, I made some new friends and some new enemies during that series, but it was good, I thought. Fun, anyway. Uh, opened up some discussion. And now we're back into Joshua, which is, um, for me, I love expository preaching. I love working through a book of the Bible. That's, um, that's me, that's who I am, that's how I'm wired. And so uh, it's, I've been looking forward to getting back into Joshua, working through this book. And Joshua, really, it's the sixth book in the Old Testament. Uh, hopefully you've had a chance to read some of it, all of it. I don't know where you're at. Maybe you've never heard of it. It doesn't matter. You can pick it up today. But Joshua is the story of God. And this is important because we often think in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, that it's about us, that the story is about me or it's about Joshua or it's about Israel. It's not. It's about God. This is important. It's theocentric. This is the story of God fulfilling his promises to give Israel their own what? Land. You're awake. Some of you are awake to give Israel their own land. So he leads them out of being a slave people in Egypt. And by the end of Joshua, they are a, a united confederate of tribes settled in their own land in this piece of land east of the Mediterranean Sea. Um, and they're able to start their own economy, start their own agricultural system. And Joshua is the story of God using Joshua, the leader of Israel, to settle his people in this land and depose the various people groups that were already in the land. And if that raises moral questions for you about how could God possibly justify this kind of violence, then you need to get hold of the message we did during our question series where we tackled that one head on. We're not going to go back into that because uh, otherwise every week we'd be spending 20 minutes setting the scene. But we did do some teaching around that and the violence issue um, the conquest, because it is problematic for many people. So there's a, whole, there's a message on that if you need to grab that to fill in some of the gaps. But we want to pick up the story today in Joshua 9. So if you have a Bible, good day to have it open on your lap. Follow along. It's always nice to actually get the pages open from time to time, isn't it, rather than just rely on the screen. But, you know, the words will be up there if you need them. Joshua 9. So we've looked at how God has led Israel through the Jordan, across the Jordan River, which is the border of Canaan, the eastern border. We've looked at how he's led them in a conquest of a city called Jericho by bringing down these walls around the city, which meant it was vulnerable to attack. But if you remember in the midst of that attack, in the midst of them taking Jericho, uh, there was a woman and her family who was spared. Her name was Rahab. And it showed us that even in the midst of the destruction, there is deliverance and there is hope and there's redemption, an echo of the New Testament, the redemption that comes in Jesus. And then we looked at, after that, we looked at Achan and his sin. And we looked at the way in which one person's sin or folly can affect the whole community and the way in which his hoarding of these treasures for himself in Jericho led to Israel being demolished in their next battle. And how when they eventually remedied that through having Achan put to death, which was pretty serious stuff, Israel went on to be victorious and took the next city of Ai. So now they've got two cities that they have pretty decisively conquered. And uh, we're going to pick up the story in Joshua 9. What happens immediately after the Israelites conquer the city of Ai is they have a massive worship service. Huge worship service on top of this mountain, or at the bottom of a mountain at least, called Mount Ebal, a little bit further north than where they've been. And they all get together again. We've got a couple of victories now. We're doing well. The conquest is underway. And the Israelites get together to make offerings to God, 
to uh, praise him, to Joshua reads aloud all the words of the law. Again, the whole story. He reminds them of their story, of God's faithfulness, what he has done on their behalf to galvanize their hearts and their minds so they know again God is for us. We can do this. Let's push forward to the finish line. That's what Mount Ebal's all about. Now, that's important to keep in mind for what happens in Joshua 9. The Israelites have just come from this huge covenant renewal ceremony. And then in Joshua 9, this passage that Anthea just read, the first thing we find is that you have this reaction on the part of some of the Canaanite kings and the various tribes and people groups that already existed in the land. Previous to this, what has happened is that every time Israel has won a victory, you read that the Canaanites melted in fear figurative language. They were terrified. And they all ran uh, screaming about this, this God, Yahweh, who was bringing his people into the land. Joshua 9, that doesn't happen. Joshua 9, what happens is after Israel's won at Jericho and they've conquered at Ai, then all of these Canaanite kings get together to make war. There's no hearts melting with fear now. There's no trembling now. They realize they've really got a problem And these alliances are formed, these military alliances, in order to protect Canaan from being completely conquered. A bunch of kings, a bunch of people, a bunch of leaders get together and they decide we're going to make war on these people who think they can just come in and take over our land. Not so easy, not so fast. But there's one group that tries a different strategy. And there are a group of people called the Gibeonites. Gibeon was one of the main cities in Canaan. It was quite close to the city now called Jerusalem, so a bit further south. And these Gibeonites, here's what they thought. There's no way, right, there's no way that we're going to be able to take Israel on because we know they've got this God. We don't understand him, but we know they've got this God on their side somehow. He is making things happen that, to be honest, are a little bit freaky when walls fall down when people are killed without much human intervention at all, we know we've got a problem. We don't think we can take these guys. So we're going to find another way of bringing them down or at least ensuring our own survival. And so they, they, they came up with this cunning little plan. These Gibeonites, they're pretty crafty. What they thought is this. Here's what we're going to do. We need to get these guys to make a peace treaty with us. It's the only way we're going to survive. But the problem is this. If they know we are from Canaan... We're dead in the water. If they know we are residents of this land, we're sunk because they are under orders to wipe out every people group in this land. They're not going to let us live if they know we're from the next block in town. So what we need to do is convince them that we are from a foreign country, that we are from far, far away, some foreign nation, because then we're not going to be nearly as much of a threat to them. They won't be worried about us. Plus, that God never commanded the Israelites to wipe out other nations besides Canaan, just the Canaanites. So they get really crafty and they send a little delegation of Gibeonites to where Israel was camped. But before they go, they load up their donkeys with these backpacks that are all worn out to make it look like they've traveled for months and months and months in order to get there. And they get all their clothes and they, and they you know, make them look like they're all worn out clothes. This was the origin of pre-faded jeans. 
This is where that came from, you know? It's like we're going to make this stuff look like it's already lived in for a long, long time. We're going to get these old wineskins, these old drink bottles that are cracked and broken so they think we've been on a journey for months and months and months. And we're even going to take some moldy old Vogel's bread so that they look at this and they think, oh, these guys have come from such a long journey, even their bread is old crusty, moldy bread. So pretty smart thinking. So they get all this stuff and they, and they travel, what, a few kilometers to where Israel is camped. And they come to Joshua and the Israelites and they say, and if you read the speech, by the way, it's just the most, the biggest grease up you've ever read. It's like, oh, we are your servants. We are your humble servants. Your God is amazing. You know, this whole butter up thing going on. Your, Yahweh, your God is so big and so strong and so mighty. There's nothing your God cannot do. That's where that song came from. They said, that you guys are the best. Your God is incredible. We've heard of your victories. We have heard. It's interesting, by the way, that they don't mention Israel's victories at Jericho and Ai. Why not? Because if they'd come from a foreign country, they wouldn't have heard about them yet. See, these guys are crafty. That was recent news. What they say they've heard about is how the Israelites came out of Egypt. Now, that happened a long time ago. That news would have traveled to a distant country by then. See, they have thought about their story. They've got it straight. They say, we've heard about your victories. We know about your God. What we're asking is that you would make a peace treaty with us. Enter into this peace covenant to allow us to live and to flourish uh, so that we know we've got your word, we've got your oath. And Joshua and the Israelites, they do a little bit of interrogating. They think, well, how do we know? Now, how do we know that you're not from another, uh, for, that you're not from Canaan, that you're not from around here? And they say, well, look at our, look at our provisions, right? Look at our backpacks. They're all worn out. Look at our drink bottles. Look at our sandals. We got them from the warehouse. They're useless, these things. We, you know, look at our, look at the old moldy bread we've got here. We have, this has had to last us months and months and months. And Joshua and the Israelites go and have a little huddle about this, little conference. They say, well, you know, it sounds like the story's stacking up. You know, this, I mean, they've got this whole thing going on, the, the, the bad clothes, the bad food. Maybe they're from Australia, you know. <laughs> What's going on? And so here is the clincher. Verse 14 is the centerpiece of the chapter. In every way, the chapter hinges on this verse. It's in the middle of the chapter for a reason. The Israelites sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. And bang, there it is. Soon as the handshake happens, that oath is made in the name of the Lord, it's an oath in the name of Yahweh with all that that entails. It is unbreakable, even though it's made under false pretenses. It is absolutely unbreakable. And now Joshua and the Israelites have a problem. A problem that, by the way, is going to last them for generations. Because now there is a little Canaanite enclave living right under their nose that cannot be destroyed. Even though Deuteronomy 7 explicitly commands the Israelites to wipe out all of these people groups, now they've got a surviving group that they can't touch, a group that's going to thrive, a group that's going to worship Baal and Asherah and these other gods, and a group that eventually in the story is going to lead Israel 
astray. And the most amazing thing about this story is that it comes right on the back of this worship service that they've had. They've just been up Mount Ebal. They've just sacrificed to God. They've just made these offerings to him. They've just recited the whole story so far. Joshua has just read out the law, including Deuteronomy 7, the part about don't let anybody stay alive in Canaan. They've just gone through all that. They've worshipped God. And then the very next thing that happens, bang, they're duped by a bunch of guys pretending to be foreigners. It's like they're worshipping God one minute and the next minute they've completely forgotten about him. I wonder what possible application this could have to us today. This kind of just preaches itself, doesn't it? You know, here we are, right, sitting, you know, here we are in a worship service and we're focused on God and we're singing about him and to him and for him and we're, we're reading the Bible and we're thinking about spiritual things. But how many times... In the last seven days since we met last, have we inquired of the Lord? How many times in the last week have you honestly asked God about anything? How many times have you sought His counsel? How many times have you sought His wisdom, His guidance, His input, His involvement in the situations and the circumstances and the problems that you're dealing with. We don't do it, do we? We don't do it. We just, for some reason, we do, this doesn't even factor into our thinking. And it's understandable. It's understandable why the Israelites do this. It's understandable why they don't inquire of the Lord because, well, they checked the facts. They, they sampled the bread. They asked a few questions. They looked. They, they weren't stupid. I mean, they did their homework. And they, they made a decision based on the facts that were in front of them. They sampled their provisions. Francis Schaeffer translates that verse in verse 14. They received them by reason of their bread. Literal translation from the Hebrew. They received them by reason of their bread. And this is, this is what we do. This is how you and I live. We make decisions based on the facts. We use our brains. We think about it, right? I mean, this is, isn't this how we live? You know, if you, if, if, you need to, if you need to make a decision about which primary school to send your child to, what are you going to do? You're going to go online and check out the school. You're going to read about it. You're going to check out the Eero report. You're maybe going to meet the principal, some teachers, tour through the school. You're going to ask parents who have their kids at that school, aren't you going to do those things? Now, is this story saying, is this implying that we shouldn't do that? Is that what's going on? Should you instead... Sit in the bedroom and close your eyes and meditate for long enough. And if you pray long enough and wait on the Lord, God's going to drop into your mind the name of a school where you are to send your child. Thus saith the Lord, you shall sendeth your child to this, this, this school. This. Because God always speaks in Shakespearean English. You know that. Right? <laughs> is, is, is that what this story is saying? It's interesting in Joshua 9... That the Israelites are never, they're never rebuked, they're never told off for what they did do. The narrator never implicitly or explicitly condemns them for what they did do. He doesn't write them off for asking questions. He doesn't condemn them or rebuke them for sampling the bread and looking at the provisions. They are rebuked for what they didn't do. For what they failed 
to do, which was to inquire of the Lord. See, God is not anti-intellectual. God doesn't want you to stop using your brain. God doesn't want you to stop reasoning and deducing and researching and crunching the numbers. He is for all of that. He gave you your brain and he wants you to use it. But what he wants us to be able to do is to bring our own reasoning, to bring our own logic, to bring our own powers of deduction and to submit them to him and to bring these decisions before him and lay them down and ask him to come and lead us and ask him to come and guide us and ask him to come and show us the way. At the moment, Anna and I are looking around for a house. We're in the house buying market and it's not easy. It's pretty slow because there's not much out there. Uh, now, we, we have talked to real estate agents and we've gone to the open homes and we've looked on Trade Me and we've you know, talked to a broker and we've crunched our numbers and we've made a budget and we've done all these things. But uh, honestly, what struck me between the eyes when I was preparing this message on Joshua, this is just me bearing my soul to you, I have virtually excluded God from this process. I know you wish you had a better pastor, right? This is just, the, seriously, like I, I honestly, I have virtually excluded God from the, I mean, I've done all the right things, you know. Thankfully, Anna, I think, has been more prayerful about this, so hopefully that compensates for my <laughs> lack of spiritual abilities. But, you know, I, I just haven't really. And it just, as I read this, I was like, man, I haven't. Why, why haven't I? You know, now, now that doesn't mean I'm not going to go to the open homes anymore. I'm not going to talk to the, but what it does mean, is that I need to start bringing this decision to God and asking for his involvement and bringing him into this process and talking to him about this. For some reason, we just don't do it. It just doesn't factor into our thinking. There's a verse in Proverbs chapter 3 that God's brought me back to a lot around this topic. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, submit to him or acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. That verse is a commentary on Joshua 9. That's exactly what the Israelites didn't do. Instead of trusting in the Lord, instead of submitting to him, Joshua and the Israelites leaned on their own understanding. I love the way that verse puts it, leaned on their own understanding. It's not that God doesn't want you to use your own understanding, it's that he doesn't want you to lean on it. Don't rely on it. We are arrogant enough sometimes to assume that my brain trumps God's wisdom, that my thinking and deducing about the situation, my analysis of the facts is all that's required, thanks very much, and I'll draw some pictures for God to try and explain it to him and use simple words so he gets it, but thank you, I'm in charge, and I'll, I'll, you know, I've got this under control. We lean on our own understanding, and we fail to trust him, and we fail to submit to him. And did you notice that that verse says, in all your ways, submit to him, in all your ways, right? I think this is part of the problem. We think that this Joshua 9 concept, this inquiring of the Lord concept, it, it, it works in some areas, but not in others. Because most of us inherently are dualists. You might not think it, but this is how we live. We carve up the world into the spiritual and the secular, or the sacred and the secular. The spiritual stuff and then real life. And we assume that this inquiring of the Lord business, you know, works for the spiritual stuff. I mean, this is stuff that church leaders should do, right? This is stuff that church elders should do 
And heaven knows even we need to work at it, you know. But inquiring of the Lord, this is something that you do when you're trying to figure out where God's leading your church or, or maybe where you personally are going in a spiritual sense. Maybe it's something that we do if we face a massive, massive crisis. Or you're at a fork in the road and you have absolutely no clue where to go. Then maybe I'll inquire of the Lord. Then maybe I'll ask him. But what about inquiring of the Lord over a new business client that you're thinking about taking on? What about inquiring of the Lord over an employee that you're having difficulties with? Or a a staff member? or Or a student in your class? What about inquiring of the Lord over a job prospect? an opportunity that's coming up? What about inquiring of the Lord? If you were a jury member, what about inquiring of the Lord? See, in our minds, we just think that's not even appropriate. That doesn't even belong because you know why? We have, we have shut God out. We have created a dichotomy, spiritual, secular. And this stuff is secular. God doesn't belong there. Or worse, we think he's not interested in it. He, just, he doesn't care about this. He doesn't care about my job. He doesn't care about the marketplace. He doesn't care about my workplace. He's not interested in business decisions. He's not interested in my gym life, my golfing life, my home life, my sports life. Surely God's interested in the spiritual stuff. We have become dualists. We've become modern-day Gnostics. And God is saying to us, I'm interested in the whole thing. I want you to trust in the Lord with all your heart and in all of your ways. Learn to submit to me in all of your ways. There is no area of your life God's not interested in. There is no crevice of your existence that God does not want you to open up to the power and the presence of His Spirit. There is just no area that He wants to be off limits to Him, but we typically just keep Him at arm's length. You know, God, you can have this stuff here, but no way, not not the bank balance, not the money. There's so much fear attached to it. God, you can have this area and you can help me choose which ministry I'm going to serve in in church because that's spiritual, but not this relationship over here, not who I should be dating. No, 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 that's me. That's my call. This is my stuff, right? You have yours, I'll have mine. God says, in all your ways, submit to me and I will make your paths straight. And maybe there's some areas of your life that until this moment have been completely off limits and you assume God's only interested in the Mount Ebal. He's only interested in the big, in the worship service and that stuff. God is also, listen, God is also the God of the moldy bread. He's also interested in those mundane, banal, trivial situations that you might have written off and figured that he doesn't even care about. He's interested in them. And he wants you to start opening that stuff up to his presence and his power and his grace. Now, does that mean that when you're standing at Wendy's and you are looking at the menu board and you are trying to decide between the home-style chicken fillet combo and the big classic double with cheese combo, does that mean that you should right there in the line have a little prayer meeting, pull others around you, hold hands, take up an offering and say, which combo, Lord? Which combo is it? You can't fast because there's no time for that. But you can pray about it. Now, is that what we're saying? No, of course not, right? It's always the chicken. (laughs) Don't need to worry about that. Always the chicken. Of course, that's not the case. Now, look, this is the thing. God has given us a brain, right? He's given us abilities. He's given us all day, every day. You face decisions of all kinds. Many, many decisions that are trivial and inconsequential and don't have a huge effect. And we're not talking about those things. It doesn't mean God's not interested. And those things. Personally, I've got no problem with praying for a car park. You know, some people are iffy about that. God, really? God, no, surely he's... Well, I I don't have a problem with that. But it is in particular 
those decisions that have some weight to them. Those issues that have some gravity, that affect you and affect others. These are the areas in particular where God says, I want to come into that and I want to infuse my presence and my power into that situation. Now, I know you can't stand up at work in the middle of a staff meeting and say, just before we move on to agenda item 10, I think we should all pray so that we seek. You can't do I can do that because I work for a church. But you can't do that, right? You'd be laughed out of the building. But what you can do is in the privacy of your own conscience, bring these things to God. Sometimes there's situations where you only have a split second. It's what we call the Nehemiah prayer. You shoot one up to God in the second that you've got before you. There have been times, listen, there have been times when I've been talking to someone about they've come with some issue, some problem, and they've been talking away, offloading, and I'm thinking in my mind, in a couple of minutes you're going to stop talking, and then I'm going to have to start talking. And I have got no idea <laughs> what is going to come out of my mouth when I, because I don't, I, I'm lost here, you know, and it's those times when I will just shoot up in, in, this, in the split second I've got, God, help me. That's sometimes all you've got, right? That's all you can do. And that's good too, you know, just he is merciful and gracious and just learn the rhythm of in the second, just God, help me. God, bring your presence, bring your spirit. And I'm amazed and to be honest, you know, there have been times when just God has given a verse, a word, something that just needs to be said to this person at this time. And I know without a shadow of a doubt, that's not me. It wasn't me, God, you know, this, that's you. He spoke, and it's humbling. There are times, though, and there are decisions when we can take a little bit of time, when we can have a little bit of time out, we can build a little bit of margin into our lives that allow us to just consider this carefully with God and bring him into the process. And It's speaking and listening. It's got to be both. Inquiring of the Lord is speaking, talking to God about the issue, the dilemma, the problem, the person, whatever it is, and then listening, actually listening in case, heaven forbid, he actually had something to say. Now, most of the time it's, hey, God, you can bless this. Okay, great, here we go, right? It's just, God, would you rubber stamp this decision I've already made? Thanks very much. Off we go, you know, just to appease our own conscience. But what if God actually wanted to say something? What if he actually had a view? What if he actually wanted to shift your perspective, change your paradigm, shift your thinking? Does he have the space in your life to do it? Does he have the time in your life to do it? Are you open enough? Are you listening enough that you would even hear his voice if he chose to speak about something you are doing or something that's coming up or something you're wrestling through? And you say, well, what if I don't hear anything, though? What if I don't get anything? I'm... Then you don't get anything. And uh, more often than not, you, might, you mightn't get anything. You might not. But it's the very process of inviting God to be a part of these decisions that makes the difference. It's the very process of bringing our reasoning and our human judgment and our human assessment of the facts to the cross and laying them down that transforms us. It's the very process of taking the time in the most trivial and secular and ordinary areas and arenas of our life, bringing these to the cross and saying, God, this is yours too. This is not off limits. You are not unconcerned about this. You're not indifferent to this. You don't write this part of my life off. I ask you to come in. And, and you may just start to see areas of your life in ways you'd never seen them before. The very process of being aware of God's presence with you in the gym may just transform the way you think about what it is you're doing at the gym. The very process of asking God to be with you every time you stand up in front of a group of people and teach students, wherever it is, every time you go into a lecture. 
every time you hop in the squad car, whatever it is, every time you're on the tools, on the construction site, to be aware of God's presence, to be reminded of his presence, and to ask him to come with his grace and his power. And if, if God, there is anything you want to say, then you have total freedom. Please speak it. Please say it. Please prompt me and nudge me and push me until I get it. That very process is what starts to break us open and make us more responsive and more receptive to the movement of God's Spirit in our ordinary, everyday lives. Not just here, today, but tomorrow at work, tomorrow at school, tomorrow at uni, tomorrow at home, tomorrow at sports practice. In those times, in those ways, God is saying, I want you to inquire of me. There's a little epilogue to this story in Joshua 9. And we'll wrap up with this. A couple of days later, Joshua and the Israelites discover that these Gibeonites aren't foreigners and Australians at all. They're actually locals. They live just outside Jerusalem, a couple of kilometers down the road. So they hightail it down to Gibeon, the city of Gibeon, which, surprise, surprise, is just next door. And they confront the Gibeonites about this. And they say, what have you guys done? You've completely duped us. We've made this covenant. What's going on? And the Gibeonites confess They say, yes, we were scared for our lives. We tried to trick you. We did this. We're terrible. Do with us as you see fit. And most of the Israelites want to kill them at that point. And they lobby Joshua to just wipe these guys out. But Joshua believes, apparently, that this covenant, because it was made in the name of Yahweh, is unbreakable, even though it was made under false pretenses. And so he says to the Gibeonites, here's what we're going to do. Because you guys have tricked us, we are going to consign you to be slaves, woodcutters and water carriers for the community. That's what you'll be, but we, but we will let you live. We will let you survive. And there's this wonderful verse right at the end of the chapter, the very last verse. That day he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the community and for the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord would choose, and that is what they are to this day. Did you notice where they get to serve? At the altar of the Lord? The altar is part of the tabernacle complex, the most holy place in the camp of Israel, the most holy place in the nation. That's what would become the temple. And right there at the altar of the Lord, where the sacrifices are made, where Israel came to receive forgiveness, where Yahweh came to make atonement, where Israel came to worship, right there at the altar, bringing the wood for the fires and the water to put out the fires at the end of the day. Who do we find there? But the Gibeonites, these foreigners, these slave people, these con artists, these fraudsters, right there, as close to the presence of God as any Israelite could ever get. This is what biblical interpreters call a redemptive moment in the text. In spite of all the failure and the folly and the stupidity that goes on with Joshua and the Israelites, here is God injecting his grace into the situation and bringing hope out of hopelessness and bringing redemption where there has just been brokenness. And it reminds us, friends, that even though we have a pretty poor track record of inquiring of the Lord and we don't do it as much as we should, there's always hope. doesn't matter what your past is like, God's always willing to redeem your future. doesn't matter how many times I've kept God at arm's length and kept him on the sidelines while I've been playing on the field and just running my own show, doing my own thing, and then maybe just bringing things to God for his final sign-off, but just trying to explain to God that really I'm in charge of this area of my life or that area of my life, no matter how many times we've done that, God has just waited patiently for us. He hasn't taken off. 
He hasn't abandoned us. He hasn't said, oh, we'll flag it, then I'm just going to go spend some time with some people that actually care and actually want to involve me in their life. No, he has just waited there patiently. And you know the incredible thing about God is this. The moment you decide to turn around, the moment you decide to say, this is the day I'm going to start inquiring of the Lord. I'm actually going to practice this. I'm going to become a Joshua 9 person. The moment you say that, God says, all right, let's go. He doesn't wag his finger at you, give you a lecture and a big tut-tut, I told you so. No, he says, all right, let's go. Let's do it. Let's start moving forward. He's the God of hope. He's the God of future. He's the God of tomorrow. He's the God of new life. He's the God of new possibilities. And he'll take whatever state of affairs our life is in, whatever wreckage we've made of our life or otherwise, and he'll just start picking up the pieces and start moving the story forward. That's the kind of God that we're talking about. That's the kind of God we serve. And you may have never, ever in your life inquired of God before today. You may have just thought, this is not even something that, I, that, that I'm comfortable with, that I do. God is saying, this can be the moment when it starts. Don't let yourself just be caught in the spiral of hopelessness. I've never been that way. I can't possibly change. The future doesn't have to be the past. It can be different. And this, this can be the day we begin to be people who inquire of the Lord. Maybe you've been a dualist and you see it this morning clearer than you've seen it before, that I have put up a wall and I've put some things in the spiritual category and some things in the real life, you know, secular category. And I've just carved up my life and kept God out of here. Today's the day to tear down that wall and declare to God everything's spiritual. My work is as sacred as this sanctuary this meeting of God's people on Sunday. My workplace is sacred and God, you want it too. You have a claim over that area of my life and I surrender that to you. Maybe today is the day. Maybe there's an area of your life you've never allowed the presence and power of God's spirit into. Maybe there's fear associated. What would happen if I did? What's he going to do? And God is gently prompting your spirit today and saying, I want you to release it. I want you to lay it down, I want you to bring it to the cross, that relationship that you've never surrendered, just kept God out of. Today's the day to lay it down. Start inquiring of the Lord, God, what would you have me do here? And stopping long enough to listen. That job that you've never allowed God to have a say, be a part of, that decision, those finances, your parenting, your school and academic life, whatever it is, today is the day to lay that down. God, this is yours. This is yours. It's not mine. It is yours. I'm scared and I don't know what's going to happen, but it's yours. Take it, use it, do what you will with it, and then behind that comes the ongoing commitment. I'm going to be a person who inquires of the Lord. Whenever I hit an intersection, whenever I hit a problem, whenever there's something going on in my life, and in the most trivial of ways, in the most ordinary and everyday of situations, let's learn to be people who trust in the Lord with all of our heart and who refuse to lean on our own understanding and rely on our own judgment. But instead, in all of our ways, in all of our ways, submit to Him with the full and confident assurance that as we do, he will make our paths straight. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your guidance. Thank you that you want to be involved and you want to be present in our life and you want to move in our life and guide us. And God, we just see today, you want to be part of our life in ways we'd never even realized. You want to be involved in parts of our life that we didn't even think you cared about. 
And Father, in this time and in the quietness of these moments of reflection, we bring any piece, any part, any arena of our life that is unsurrendered and we hand it to you. And we don't do that just with words, God, because in some ways today's an easy day to say that. But Father, we say it with a view to tomorrow and what that's going to mean. God, we confess the areas of our life right now that we have not inquired of you. Father, we repent right now of decisions that we've made even in the last week and we've not sought your counsel when we should have and we've not asked for your help and we've not involved you. God, we confess those things now. We receive your forgiveness for them. We thank you that even as we say them, they're forgiven because Jesus has died for them. And Father, we covenant together this morning to be a people who inquire of the Lord, who learn the lesson of Israel in Joshua 9 and bring you into every dark corner of our life that has not yet seen the light of your Spirit. And we open that up to you now. We lay our whole lives bare and open and we say, Lord, show us your way. Show us your way, Lord, that we might walk in it, that we might be those who trust you wholeheartedly and submit to you in every single thing. God, pick us up when we fail, as we know we will. Carry us on by your Spirit. And we thank you for the promise that you will make our paths straight. We depend on you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.